You're listening to the Palladium Park Podcast. This show and our website, palladiumpark.com, are designed to improve thinking and communication skills. Your hosts are the co-founders of Palladium Park, Jenna Shaw and Colin Wheeler. Together, they explore the vastness of intellectual curiosities in the world. Like and subscribe to this show to never miss a new episode. Although we are consultants, we are not consulting you through this podcast. All information shared in this podcast is intended to be informative and entertaining in nature. While we make every effort to make sure topics discussed on this podcast are accurate, they may be incomplete or changing in nature. All views and opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Palladian Park. jump right in here sure let's do it okay so we'll cover what we've explored first so we we have two different topics that we um, included in this newsletter Um, the first one is about walking and thinking and then the second one is about the mortality of facts both pretty interesting the first one walking and thinking i don't think is really news to anybody is just kind of providing a little bit of background and reasoning as to why thinking or rather walking helps improve thinking. Um, It's good for body and mind. So there were some good articles um, that we read in the Wall Street Journal, in the New Yorker, and then there's a book called The Philosophy of Walking, and Farnham Street had a good uh, uh, write-up of that. Jenna, was there really anything that stuck out to you on any of these? I think it was more, it just really hit close to home, and I think this is a good topic because it's important, but it also is really applicable to a lot of people where Colin and I both like, individually and also together we do it a lot too there's a lot of times where we'll have meetings and talk about life and palladium park and other things and we end up walking you know we look at our watches and realize we've walked many miles and so yeah i like that it's these when you read through these articles too they talk about physiologically the reason behind it uh, because there's a lot of anecdotal evidence through history right it's like benjamin franklin thoreau there's all sorts of people really esteemed people that have talked about this and i think especially now with technology and with most people sitting in cubicles inside um, and having their phone and other things, it's good to at times disconnect and go for, even if it's a short walk, to be able to really think and not be distracted. And we both enjoy that, I know. Yeah. And a lot of business leaders, too, have been promoting um, walking meetings and stuff like that just because you get a lot more quality out of it. Sure, there are a lot of other things like distractions and stuff that can happen, especially if you're like in uh, downtown New York or something versus uh, a suburb where you're at a park but there there are a lot of benefits to it as well one thing that i i did like that um we read in the new yorker article was the thoreau quote and i think it was just because he says me thinks in it which is i mean who who says that anymore but he says me thinks that the moment my legs begin to move my thoughts begin to flow and mm-hmm. i don't know if it's quite the moment for me it's usually like two to five minutes later, but completely different from just sitting around where sometimes you need to sit around and just ruminate on something. But if you're really trying to get the creative thought juices flowing, get up and start moving. Yeah. Get blood to the brain, get moving. Then also for me, they, and they talked about this a little bit, but um, definitely depends on where you're walking to. And so for me, I'm a natural person. I like nature. And so I, I usually think a lot, better when I'm like uh, 
uh, walking on a trail in the woods or through a meadow or something like that, as opposed to um, walking down like a city block. I think a lot of people are that way, just kind of the way that nature is. But conversely, there is a lot more energy in a city, a lot more things happening. So that can be kind of energizing to some others who prefer that landscape. Yeah, I think you can't go wrong either way. Any walking is better than no walking, you know, for your physical and mental health. But especially, yeah, I'm with you where I like the natural things. Also, the fact when you said I'm a natural person, like I just like picturing you, someone could like videotaping you or something, you'd be like, I'm natural, dang it. I knew what you meant, but it made me giggle. Picturing you yelling at someone being like, I'm natural, I promise. <laughs> or even like a hippie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. totally but yeah i'm with you where we both like to be out in nature it's it feels very two birds one stone too right of it just does wonders to be out among the trees and or whatever nature you prefer Um, and so if you can do that and get a little exercise and thinking done as well it's i guess that could be counted as three birds one stone so all good things anything else on walking i think we're good i think that kind of covers it all right so the the next one facts are mortal oh no you want to start with your thoughts on this one Sure. Basically with this, it's like, as we all know, knowledge changes over time. You just look through history and you can see how much the facts and the knowledge of the day, some stay true throughout, but a lot of it over time becomes obsolete and things change definitely in medicine through all sorts of different things. But, you know, through time, it's good to know that any quote unquote facts that are here now, while they're they're the best we know of as now, it's good to not be married to those facts. I think it comes down to the way I think about it, like of understanding that facts are an are incredibly important tool, but it's the best we have now and not to be married to that idea, not to hold on so tightly, right? Like and center the your whole way you view the world and everything around those so tightly because at any point it can change or become obsolete or in a lot of different ways. And that's what science is always kind of doing. We talk about that a lot, right? Of like it's chipping away slowly but surely through experiments to try to understand the world better. So our our facts are always on that journey and always are apt to change. And sometimes they, like you said, they're mortal and they actually die because we understand the world a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, I kind of like how this guy, so all of our links in here are basically attributed to the same guy, Sam, and I'm sorry, I'm probably going to butcher his name, but Herbsman, Abersman, something like that. I'm sorry, but. (laughs) Sorry, Sam. We like your work. Sorry, Sam. Yeah. Just call him Sam. (laughs) Um, <laughs> a lot harder for me to screw that up, but, um, so the first link that we had was a Ted talks that he gave actually here in Kansas city. Nice. And, um, then there, this was also covered in the, you're not so smart podcast, which is a really good podcast. And then Farnham street had a write up on his book as well. And it, it talks about the half-life of facts. And so it's kind of similar to, or the way that he describes it is, um, nuclear, elements and i think it was uranium specifically that he was talking about but so basically the nuclear decay of elements is uh it's halved every so often so whatever its half-life is if it's 10 years then after 10 years half of it will be gone and then the next 10 years half of that so you'd be at 25 percent after 20 years in that case and so he kind of applies that he says you know it's that's analogous to really how facts work. And so that's why he called this the half-life of facts. And really each atom in uranium does not abide by the half-life rule. It's only when you have a significant quantity 
of, of those atoms is where you actually have the rule applying. And so it's kind of similar with facts, how you don't know which one is going to be proved wrong over a certain amount of time. However, if you can say that there's this group of facts in the medical industry, the health industry, then half of those will be proved incorrect over, I forget what the time frame was, but he, he had some different numbers for different industries, which was kind of fascinating too for the uh, experiments that he was doing and, and looking at over how much things change. He did say how some fields are more open to this idea and, and they acknowledge it more than others. Kind of like um, in med school, they say half of the stuff that we're teaching you will be proved incorrect by the time you graduate. Um, we just don't know what half. I don't know about you, but th this wasn't something that I remember anybody ever saying in engineering school. It basically, the way that we know for airflow and gravity uh, versus lateral structural systems are pretty much still the same. Electricity flows the same way. Yeah, the only thing I can really think is it's very, it's almost like a light version of that. It's just like how the codes change and how um, ASHRAE and things like that, like they come out with new versions with updated numbers. So it, it kind of is adjacent, but yeah, it wasn't like half of this is going to be obsolete. It was more just things get updated slowly. So it's kind of on a small, much smaller scale is maybe the only way, but overall, no. And it kind of fits with a lot of, I think, engineers and construction people. They're slow, slower to adopt because they want to make sure that what we know works. And so sometimes it's not as much as open to that all the time or it's a little it takes a little bit longer of proof I think because people's lives are in our hands it's not quite the same as the medical field in terms of like they it's just a different version you know what I mean yeah the medical field is more like on the frontier where they're That's constantly the turning yes. for new stuff yeah yes. whereas engineering and construction is a little bit more established and more hasn't needed yeah it hasn't needed to really reinvent itself as much as the medical industry has over the years. So that's a great way of putting it. That's exactly what I meant to say, but you nailed it way better mm -hmm. than I did. <laughs> but yeah, I think that the the AEC industry he talks about, it does have a much longer half-life effects as opposed to the medical field. If in med school, they say that uh, half the stuff that you learn is going to be overturned by the time you graduate. I know a lot of people in med school, it takes a whole different amount of time per person, but really it it's not that long in the grand scheme of things, as opposed to, I forget exact, I, I don't want to say what he said the AEC industry was, because I'll probably be wrong, but it was, it was a lot longer. Yeah, which makes sense too. The incentive, you would hope the people on the frontier is medicine that's like directly dealing with human lives and trying to elongate human lifespans and help treat people. It's like, it makes sense that they would do that more than, you know, in the AC industry, we already have such a good baseline and a template. Like you always want to keep improving on that, but it's not as, I would say, as vital, right? In terms of our building standard, we don't have a huge problem of buildings falling down or other things. I mean, things happen, but overall, right? Like we have a good template that works. And so um, it's not as big of a driver as when you're trying to hopefully cure cancer and cure all these diseases and help humanity. Glad to have the medical industry be more on the frontier in that regard. It's a very important Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, should we move into the books? Let's do it. All right. Well, if, well, let's just go in order. So the first one was one that I read. It's called Emotional Intelligence 2.0 by Travis Bradbury and Gene Greaves. It's a pretty short book. It's really easy to read. You can buzz through it in a day or two if you want, if you want to take a little more time to 
digest it maybe a week. But regardless, it's pretty short and sweet. Really, the outline of it is they're talking about emotional intelligence, and they say that there's really two primary competencies when it comes to emotional intelligence skills. Personal ones, so that's internal to yourself, and then you have social ones, and so that's external. That's how you interact with other people. Both of those can be further broken down into two other categories. So for personal competence skills, those are made up of your own self-awareness of yourself and then how you manage yourself, your self-management skills, basically like self-discipline. And then conversely, for the social side, the external side, how you deal with other people, that competence is made up of social awareness and social management skills. So social awareness is how you understand that other people perceive you. And then social management is how you actually are interacting with other people. So that's kind of how the book starts out. And then it, it kind of goes through each one. So it starts out with personal, then moves to social and uh, talks about major factors within each one. So overall, pretty basic, but good reminder on uh, what's important and how to actually use those skills and improve them both for internally and externally too. Can I ask you a question, Colin? Please do. I'm going to put you on the spot, but I'm curious. <laughs> is there something? Oh, what? We can edit it. We can, we can edit this edit out, out if I good. if I fail. Yeah, yeah. great. Can't wait. <laughs> uh, so, is there something like just off the top of your head that I won't necessarily say favorite, but something that stuck out or that you really enjoyed? And it can be kind of a niche little thing, but when you look back on the book, like, is there something that stands out or that right now that you're like, oh, that was great? And it can be big or small. Yeah, nothing's really coming to mind on. Uh, the good stuff, like like I said, is really pretty basic. It's just a good reminder of things. Going back to the mental models that we were talking about in it and inverting, there were a couple of parts that I didn't really like that much because it, it was a little bit too basic. And it was ba- kind of like saying, uh, if something bad happens to you, don't immediately react, take a breath, step back, reassess. And you're like, okay, well, I've Maybe I just had great parents, but I was told that since I was two. So yeah. that's almost border borderlining on like a no shit Sherlock kind of moment where you're like, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe in the execution, we don't always get that part right. But I think most people know, hopefully I have a baseline of like, yeah, if you can take a step back and take a deep breath. That's great. Invert right. that question. I love it. <laughs> was there anything else that stood out that you were like, oh, I don't, I don't agree with or you didn't love? No, that's, no that's that's the main one that I can remember um, that really stuck out. Cool. And that badge of honor, Colin and I were just talking about this like last week, maybe of when you first start reading, it's good. It can be really easy like to start with easier reads or more digestible reads just to get you in the habit and then moving forward. And hopefully as you get more critical in your reading and the more you read and the more of really great writing that you read, you become more critical in a good way and very in a constructive way. And so now if I read something though, and I there's no point where I stop and question what's being said or like disagree or it makes me ponder, I'm kind of it feel almost feels like a waste. Because if I completely agree with everything the author says it to me, it feels like it's lacking depth or it's just an odd, it, something's lacking there. Because if you're saying, I think of anything of value and depth, there should hopefully be something that's contentious or in some way that is enough thought provoking that it makes me stop and take a deeper thought. So for that, us, that's kind of a badge of honor of reading something that it doesn't all have to mm-hmm. be roses and happiness. Yeah. And if you agree with everything that you're reading, um, it should be a red flag to you that um, could be slipping into confirmation bias which we'll be talking about in the future. 
Totally. That's a wonderful point. Awesome. Should we go to the next book? Yeah. Because we've both read this one. Yep. So you can start us off if you want. Ooh, okay. So the next book is Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. Colin has read this more recently than I, so don't judge me too harshly. Um, But we're both (laughs) a fan of Brene Brown's work. We like, she's basically a researcher at, uh, is it University of Houston? It's somewhere in Texas. Don't quote me on that. You're right. Okay. And uh, she basically does qualitative research. And so she does research on vulnerability and shame. Um, and is she had a, I think it started all tar- started with a TED talk, didn't it? For her, um, that kind of yep. went viral Yep. about vulnerability and um, how important it is. And so in the evolution of her research that kind of started with vulnerability, she went into Daring Greatly, which is basically all about how to live a life and especially in, in life and in business, how to lead and uh, live your life daring and being vulnerable with those around you. Do you have anything else to add? You might have a better synopsis than that. That's pretty general, but yeah, no, I think that was good. This is definitely a longer book than the the first one, but not long by any means. There are a couple parts in here. My only criticism is that a couple parts seem to be a little fluffy in the words of um, one of my former English teachers, but overall it was good. The, and Really, I think the reason why she was doing that was to provide more examples for the reader to be able to better understand and internalize, which is a good goal to have. So really not a big criticism at all there. But um, she did have a few different quotes in there that were really good. Um, one was where she's uh, describing the difference between guilt and shame. Love that. Yeah. And so guilt, she says, means that I did something bad and shame means that you are bad. And so she says that guilt is just as powerful as shame, but its influence is positive, whereas shame is destructive. So that's a very important thing, I think, for a lot of people to internalize and use in their own lives, not just from this like academic perspective, which although she is an academic, her her writing is much more accessible than like stereotypical academia. But I think that even from like a sports perspective or something like that, if uh, let's say you're a soccer player and you, you make a bad pass and uh, the other team either gets a chance or they score off of it or something like that, it doesn't mean you're a bad player. You made a bad pass. You made a mistake. And so it, you, sh- you should be, be feeling guilt and not shame. Um, if you're feeling shame, then you'll, that'll devolve into negative morale for yourself. And man, that's really hard to pull yourself out of. Whereas if you just say, I made a mistake, I did something bad, this isn't me, but I'm not perfect, I'm prone to these mistakes, then you're much more likely to bounce back from it in a positive light. For sure. And she talked a lot about shame um, thrives in silence. It needs like, it needs the secrecy and it grows like a petri dish where if you human connection, and if you talk about it, you talk about the hard things and other people, you know, empathy, you know, within empathy, shame can't survive. And it's a great way of saying like, yes, it's important to talk about the difficult things and to, yeah, change We're it's easy to get pedantic, but we talk about a lot how words are important and they matter. And so it's important to distinguish between, even if you say, and I'm guilty of this all the time of saying like, oh, I suck. You know, you screw up something, whether it's like musically or when I play sports, like I'm, man, I, that was shitty. Like I'm bad. Like that sucked. I'm a, I'm a shit player. I don't really mean that, but those words have power. And so it's a, a little distinction, but it's important to say, oh, that was a bad pass. That was a bad shot that I played that song terribly. Not to say I'm a bad player, but it's like that 
has an impact on your brain. And it's like, if you start training yourself to say it that way, you view it differently and you view yourself differently. And yeah, before her work, I didn't think about that explicitly, the difference between mm-hmm. the two. I also like how she talks about going into the arena yes. of life and like also when taking, which is like the perfect balance, right? Because some people say you shouldn't care what anyone thinks. It's like, well, no, I mean, we're a social species. That's a terrible strategy. Um, I get their sentiment though, right? It's like a balance of you need to get feedback from people. That's important. That's what socialization is. But also you you can drown in caring about everyone's opinions of you. And she always said, and she talks about, you know, if you're not in the arena getting your ass kicked with me, like trying to do the best being vulnerable in life, like I'm not going to take your feedback. And that's exactly it. It's about being selective, caring about the feedback people give you, but being selective with what people you listen to. I love the way she said that. It's such a great imagery for that because that's what it feels like sometimes. I like that she doesn't sugarcoat it. You know, she's like, if you're in the arena, you're going to get your ass kicked sometimes. That's just part of it. But that's part of being alive and that shows you you're alive and it's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Part of the human condition. Yeah. One last quote on this one before we move on. I think this is super important for a whole host of different people. So basically, humans are social creatures. And so social interactions are vitally important. And when those go wrong, people can get angry, people can get hurt. But so she talks about disengagement and the effects of disengagement, and why that happens. And so she says, we disengage to protect ourselves. We also disengage when we feel like the people who are leading us. So our boss, our teachers, our principal, clergy, parents, or politicians aren't living up to their end of the social contract. Mm. And so I think this is super important for a whole host of people. I'm, I'm specifically thinking like certain business leaders and uh, if their coworkers are disengaging, could be because somebody isn't living up to their end of the social contract. Family members, friends, a whole host of different social dynamics come into play on this one. Yeah, that's a good reminder. That one kind of hit me straight between the eyes. That, like it's a good reminder for me too. Because mm-hmm. it can be so easy to just be like, effort to it all you know or to say it's easier to just walk away at this time and not you know deal with the issue and understand like oh yeah why am I disengaging why is that the reason so it's good for the bosses and other people but also within yourself to be like oh I'm wanting to disengage right now I always I really like that idea they say like just be curious about everything even the negative stuff because it takes a lot of the sting out of it of being like huh I really like want to disengage right now I wonder why you just make it very much a question and then you can like look at it and realize that usually that's exactly what it is and help make a better decision and not just completely disengage because it's very easy to do. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll let you take 1984 because you just read this and I read it in high school. So um, I remember the, the general concept, but not the, the finer points of it. So take it away. Awesome. Yeah. So 1984 by George Orwell. Uh, I first read this in high school too. I hadn't read it since. I remember though um, it was one of the books I really, really enjoyed in high school. Um, and thought it was great. And then now most people here, it's one of those books I think a lot of people lie about having read and they know like Big Brother's watching you. You know, it's it's such a classic. It's really permeated into culture, like a lot of the things they talk about. But upon this new reading, I was quite blown away by it and the timelessness of it because it's just still so relevant. And George Orwell is just so prescient about the human condition and about totalitarian states. And it's, it's the perfect type of dystopian novel where it's just... A step away. It's not that. It's not hard to imagine us going down the road into it. So basically, it's a society, and it's Big Brother runs everything, and Big Brother's always watching you. There's screens in your room. They're listening to you. I mean, anything that is not normal is taken 
away. And so people are basically, they basically convert people and then end up, they take them away, convert them and then kill them. And so it's all about, it's very much mirroring a lot of the things that happened in the 20th century in that way. And they say, oh, is it on here? I should remember it now. Um, there's like three slogans and it's basically very much like contradictory thinking and they call it double think. Um, and it's a way to basically, oh yeah, war is peace, freedom is slavery and ignorance is strength. And they so ingrain with propaganda and everything that those three things become the truth of this society. And they basically rewrite all of history. So they go in and they're at war with one country and they've always been at war with that country. And then if they switch over it, all the history books are rewritten to take out that they were ever at war with this other country. So it's basically saying that they basically say like, he who controls the past controls the present, he who controls the present controls the future. Um, and that feels quite stark right now. And when I first heard that, it really reminded me kind of of the Civil War because yeah, technically the North won, but the South in a lot of ways with a lot of their rhetoric and things that were in their history books, they spun it a lot to put Confederate soldiers as heroes and to teach young kids that for years. So they really understood that narrative matters, that history, the way we teach history matters and that there can bias can permeate that and they can put that narrative in. It's kind of tangent way of thinking about it, but yeah, it basically is a it's quite a frightening tale about what happens when the, we start to worship the state, when the state takes over and gets power and doesn't value the individual at all. So, it was quite good. Do you remember anything from your high school read that stuck out? I'm, I'm curious. It's been a long time. Yeah, just the general concept of it. But I do have the book in my room, so I it's probably going to find its way on my reading list pretty soon. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, and some of the quotes that, I, that stuck out, there's a lot of them. And a lot of these are quoted a lot because they're very good. But at one point he says, perhaps one did not want to be loved so much as understood. Mm-hmm. And I remember that hit me. I was like, that dang damn straight that's <laughs> pretty spot on with humans and then oh i really like this one where it's like the choice for mankind lies between freedom and happiness and for the great bulk of human of humankind happiness is better and i like that because the idea of freedom it's a, very much a buzzword now in a lot of ways it's great but it's something that's not easy to attain it's you, it's you has to be fought for um, and like anything you need a balance of it right because total freedom is being by oneself because to be in any society with people you give up some of your personal freedom, your individuality. Hopefully not too much, but you, in some ways you have to give up some of that. So ultimate freedom is not good because you're alone and humans aren't meant to be alone. Most, you know, you go crazy. So it's like balance, as we say, balance of all things. But I like that idea of in America, we really value freedom. And I think that's a beautiful thing, but understanding that it's, it's never was claimed to be easy and you all, the fight is ongoing for it and that it's an important thing to strive for. Um, but how a lot of people, yeah, the bulk of mankind, happiness is better. Especially now, a lot of people say, like, what's your goal in life to be happy? Oh, you know how I, I feel about that. Where you get the sentiment, <laughs> but it's very poor wording and it's not quite right. Mm-hmm. Ooh, sorry, one more. I forgot about this one. This one, I remember when he said it's sanity is not statistical. Yes. Because he's at his own point. He knows that he is living in truth and everyone else is buying the lies and saying, like, you can still be right insane as a single entity and I really like that because that's very hard to do as a social creature to understand that to understand that sometimes the minority is right and it's important to just because you have the statistics and you're in the majority does not mean you're always right you could be but not always Mm -hmm. so overall a great timeless read about humanity and totalitarianism and everything in between 
Yep. And you know he's a titan of an author when people take your last name and, and use it as a description for something else like Orwellian. Yeah. You've made it. Yep. And it's you can see why, too. When you read it again, you go, oh, this stands up. As an adult, it, it, it's one of those things where even in high school, I was like, this is great. But as you get older, it's like the, you just get so much – the depth of it sinks in so much more when you read it and have some experience in life behind it. And you just go, oh, yeah. As you read it more, there's just so much more to get out of it. Yeah, yep. that's the last of the books. All right. We'll move into what we're thinking about then. This was uh, kind of a head-scratcher for us and a roller coaster of emotions while we read it and talked about it. And from talking to some of the people who – read the newsletter too. This really stuck out to them. I don't know if it was um, the bias where this was at the end for the reason why it stuck out or just the absurdity of it. Yeah. I don't know, but it really was crazy. So anyways, in the New York times, there was a article a few weeks ago about how people are flying nowhere, literally flying nowhere. It's these tour flights where they go to an airport, they get on a plane, they they don't even get up to 30,000 feet. I think it was like 10 or 15,000 and just fly around. Most of this was taking place in like Australia, Southeast Asia, Japan. And so you're flying around the country or islands or the sea. And it's like a tour where you get kind of a bird's eye view from up there. And it simulates like you're traveling again. And um, uh, you're having airline dinners, which I'm I don't know why people are so crazy to have those come back, but I think they had a pretty nice one. I think if I remember correctly, it was like they had a real, it was like they were quite qual- like high quality airlines and they had gourmet food, I think. But don't yeah. Okay. But still maybe, maybe that played a role, maybe. but, <laughs> but I, yeah, it's still not yeah. great. Yeah. And so then after their tour is done, they, they come down, they land in the same airport where they took off and go home. So interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Concept. Can- can I just say when you sent Colin yeah. sent this to me and it had the link and it said like people are flying nowhere literally and I go that can't because I just saw the link I was like that can't be what I think it is like that is so absurd there's no way and I clicked on it and started reading I was like oh my god it is exactly what it you think it is and I was like giggling and just confused reading it because it like you said it was such a journey we both kind of went on a roller coaster reading it because it was just like are we it feels like we're in the twilight zone Mm-hmm. on your first thinking yeah. then we did deeper thinking and you understand but it was quite a fun first read right yep and it should be noted too that where these are taking place coronavirus is not as big of a deal it still um exists there but it's nothing like what europe and um, the united states have been experiencing great point but yeah so i think and i don't want to put any words in your mouth but i think our first thought was what is wrong with people? Why do they need constant entertainment? <laughs> yes. Uh, it just seems like the, these people are screaming, entertain me, entertain me. And um, the airlines who are not flying, obviously, because of coronavirus and stuff, kind of created this ad- adaptation to where they could provide some kind of service where people could enjoy being up in the air again. Yeah. And yeah, it was a mixture of that. And you're like, even knowing they're... Corona's not as bad. The idea of going onto an airplane without needing to go anywhere in the, amid a pandemic just seems so absurd. Like it's just such a little tin can of easily spread. So I was just like, oh my gosh. And then too, like when you go, oh yeah, and planes are awful for the environment. And it's one thing if you're actually going somewhere, we still need to contend with that even. But then when you're now talking about like literally just fl- joyriding, and I understand there are real ramifications 
you know, mental health issues that come with a pandemic and being shut in and sure. I'm not trying to belittle that, but my first thought was you're just like, and the environmental impacts just for a joyride. It just was the first, we both were just kind of a little incredulous at first. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And especially this joyride. So we were, then we started comparing it to like other touring uh, services. So like uh, a cruise train, stuff like that. And um, you know, how to, how do those impact the environment compared to this plane and what's the experience like on those versus on a plane? And so I think a train isn't quite as bad for what it is emitting like per passenger per mile. And it's usually not always, but sometimes it's longer. I'd be like a cross country thing and really you don't come back to the same spot. It's uh, you go cross country and then you come back. So that's usually like over a few days, maybe a week. The plane ride is the same day, probably like three to six hours, depending on what flight you take. But a cruise ship, that takes a lot longer and it's a little bit worse for the environment based off of just the quantity of greenhouse gases that it emits per passenger. However, those gases are emitted basically at, well, literally at sea level. And the the emissions from uh, planes are up in the atmosphere. So a little bit more detrimental from where it actually is released. But still kind of putting that into perspective. And we also wondered too about how, you know, like when cruises first came out and this isn't quite applicable because boats have been around forever and, and people have taken trips on boats for ages. Trains are a little bit newer, but still they've been around longer than planes have. But with each introduction of new entertainment options, surely a, a bunch of people kind of look at it in disbelief and are kind of like, man, why why do we need that? And so it, we started thinking how applicable that is for us, how this could be a new form of entertainment. And who knows if it's here to stay or not, but it could be. And are we the the curmudgeons that throughout history have just kind of sat on the sidelines and wagged our fingers at them and uh, denounced it? Kind of goes back to our, our non-binary objective of this is not good or bad. We're just trying to grapple with all of the unintended consequences and what it actually means. Well, that's the other thing, too, when you think of incentives and if you you know, invert this in a way, when you look at the airlines, right, if you're in charge of an airline, one, you're losing a ton of money, which is difficult, but more so, hopefully, they're thinking about all the people that they employ, that lively, you know, their livelihoods depend on this industry, and it's been, the bottom's been completely taken out from underneath them. And so they're scrambling. And so from that perspective, when you're trying to keep people employed and keep them having a job, it you can see, you know, I'm not saying it's necessarily correct to do so, but you can see how, you know, they're being resourceful and this is the solution that they've come up with. And so, yeah, it it helps look at it where it's like, yeah, it's not some big bad thing where they're trying to have negative consequences. But I think too, you know, in times like this, it's good to look at the whole picture because like, especially in the United States and like California, we've had more wildfires than ever before. And, you know, scientists believe that it, you know, it's not just managing the timber, which that's part of it, like forest management, but most of it has to do with the excess of storms because of climate change. And so climate change, most people, hopefully everyone soon believes that it's real um, and it's very important. And so it's good to look at this holistically and look at and understand, right? It's not simply good or bad, but look really at the cost and benefit. And like you said, the consequences and the unintended consequences, as we're quite obsessed with that idea of how often we don't even consider the unintended consequences. And when we do, how not good we are a lot of times at understanding them. And so 
really trying to critically analyze it and understand all the costs that come from this and the bet there are definite benefits too for the people that go and for the employees as well but right yeah that's another thing to consider too is how many people are keeping um, their jobs because of this option yep yeah so yeah it just makes it a little more gray yep where we live amen yeah and so then i sh- should also note that just reading in the wall street journal this came out after our newsletter so didn't make it in there but wall street journal reported on uh, singapore airlines who they're actually not flying because of um, environmental backlash and instead are keeping a lot of their fleet grounded and it's out on the tarmac and they're they're having a uh, ground oriented entertainment option so you can uh take a tour of the plane, learn about the construction and electronics and how planes work, the aerodynamics of it. You can talk, meet and talk to a pilot. They can explain their job to you and basically everything that goes into it. And then also you can go into the aircraft itself, sit in a seat. You're not, you're not leaving. You're not moving. You know, you're staying on the tarmac, but you're being served dinner and drinks. They said that it's completely sold out. It started around $50 a, a ticket. You could get a private suite in first class for a few hundred. I forget the exact price, but sold out very quickly. And there's a waiting list. So people are itching to get out and do something. Yeah. Well, and especially the first part of that is it's quite brilliant. I think it's when we talked about it, I was like, gosh, that's so resourceful, right? You have all these people and these expertise and something like that too, where it really takes away a lot of the environmental issues and stuff. It's like, there's a lot of, you know, fellow nerds like you and I, that that stuff is cool. And if you have the money and to, be able to support those industries you'd want to anyways and it's like such a cool access because you're like yeah you have these assets of these planes that you can't use how they normally are or at least they're getting used a lot less and so it's it's quite great thinking humans we can be real adaptable and real great at times real resourceful for sure well with that i think that wraps up our newsletter i want to thank everyone for joining us and keep an eye out for your inbox on uh, the first saturday of every month where we come out with a new newsletter and then um, we follow that up with a podcast talking about what we've written and what we've explored. So yeah. And all of our blog posts will be on palladiumpark.com. Feel free to check us out. You can also sign up for the newsletter there. Please do. And you should also see us on social media too, where we'll be kind of bridging the gap in between the newsletters and podcast episodes. So you can follow us there as well. So again, thanks for listening and we will see you next time.